This episode of No Wrong Answers is brought to you by the Kauffman Foundation, which invests in educators and lifts up the Kansas City region and is dedicated to learning together to improve educational and economic success. Learn more at Kauffman.org. The Republican tax plan has one small provision that could have a big impact on teachers. Our teachers discuss what it would mean to lose the yearly deduction for classroom materials. Plus, teacher pay. No, not the amount. We know that's bad already, but actually how teachers get paid. Our teachers say schools should ditch the traditional salary schedule. Plus, an educational game asks students to role-play a slave girl trying to escape to freedom. Our teachers say, really? Those topics, plus kids these days, on this episode of the No Wrong Answers podcast. Welcome to No Wrong Answers, the weekly podcast that gives you a teacherly take on the world. I'm your host, Kyle Palmer. I'm a former teacher turned journalist, and I'm joined, as always, by a group of hardworking teachers who are getting closer and closer to Thanksgiving break. Yay. But they're here to talk today, so let's introduce them. Luann Fox, what do you teach? I teach high school English. Jamie Myers, welcome back. What do you teach? Eighth grade applications. And David Muhammad, you are back after paternity leave. You're back in the classroom. What do you teach? I teach economics and international relations. All three of them are educators at public schools in the Kansas City metro area. Well, let's get to it. Let's start by talking about tax deductions. No, wait, don't turn the podcast off. Don't go to sleep. This very likely will affect you, especially if you are a teacher. In 2015, the Internal Revenue Service says 3.7 million tax returns used a deduction that allows teachers to deduct up to $250 annually for books, supplies, and other classroom materials that are not reimbursed by their schools or districts. 3.7 million returns took advantage of that deduction in 2015. That's a significant amount considering there's only about roughly 3.8 million public school teachers in the U.S., so it would seem the majority of teachers in America, are using this tax deduction. We should also say the deduction applies to counselors, administrators, and other uh, various school support personnel. In fact, this type of job-specific deduction is rare. Only a few professions have what are called above-the-line deductions. That is where you can simply subtract the amount of the deduction from your taxable income without itemizing. And teachers is one of the professions you can do that for certain um, expenses. The Teacher Classroom Supply Deduction was created in 2002, sponsored by Republican Senator Susan Collins after she kept hearing from teachers in her state of Maine about how much of their own money they were spending out of pocket for school supplies and classroom materials. Studies in recent years have shown that on average teachers spend anywhere between $485 to $600 of their own money on supplies each year. And so that $250 deduction has been a nice perk come every April but possibly no longer. Republicans in both the House and Senate over the past week have unveiled their separate versions of a major tax overhaul. Both versions would slash corporate and individual tax rates. Both would aim to simplify the federal tax code and get rid of a bunch of deductions, including, in both versions, the classroom supply deduction for teachers. The argument by GOP tax writers goes that eliminating deductions is needed in part to pay for tax cuts that they are proposing. Now, these bills must still be marked up and debated. There's no telling if this provision to eliminate the deduction for classroom supplies will survive that process or even if the GOP will manage to get their tax reform bill through Congress at all. Still, for teachers, the idea that this tax deduction could go away is a big deal, and it's a tangible part of what can often be an arcane 
abstract debate about taxes. So we want to take at least a few minutes at the top of this episode to talk to our teachers about it. Do you personally use or have used this tax deduction in the past? And what do you think about it possibly going away? Getting nods. Yes, I am. So you take advantage of that deduction. Yes, I uh, absolutely. I do. Jamie, you're on your head as well. Yeah, every year um, my classroom budget has pretty much shrunk. I use what I can of that for classroom supplies. And then I have a classroom library that I buy new books for every year. I use that money to help me with professional development, you know, books for those courses and that type of thing. So I definitely take it every year because I know I spend more than $250 anyway. David. Most teachers dip into their pockets and sometimes they do it without even being conscious of the deduction. I mean, even outside of spending money, like I brought a chair from home because I didn't have enough chairs for students. You know what I'm saying? Like you do what you have to do as a teacher to get by. Um, And I think most teachers kind of have that mindset. I don't think most teachers are like, I got to go buy some stuff for the deduction. It's like, I got to go buy some stuff because kids don't have pencils and paper and, you know, books and such. And I think that's the mindset of most educators. Right. Lou and you. Well, yeah. and I'm also reminded that, you know, the deduction is supposed to somehow, I wouldn't say offset, but at least contribute to professional development. And um, what other profession besides this uh, do teachers really have to pay for their own advancement? I mean, a lot of other occupations will pay for their people to earn another degree, go to school, um, do something where they want to reach higher. And it seems like um, if teachers want to do that, it's it's very, very self-directed and they finance it themselves. So this helps at least yeah. a tiny bit. And to be clear, what you're referring to is not only, I mean, we kind of refer to this as a classroom supply deduction, but um, if you want to spend, let's say, $80 to register for um, a conference. A, a conference that you want to go to as an English teacher. Um, this deduction would, if 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 your district does not reimburse you for that cost, then uh, this deduction could pay for that as well. I guess. Okay. I mean, when it comes to tax time every year, of course, I mean we all have to do it. But I, I, I guess as a teacher, what does it mean to get that two hundred fifty dollars? I mean, you already said, David, you, you don't. You know, it's not a huge amount of money. It's not a big. You, know, you buy these supplies for other reasons. But as I guess, at the very least, an acknowledgement that. Yeah. That. This is what you're sacrificing? Well, it's I mean, an acknowledgement of your sacrifice? It's so unbalanced. When you hear about, like, millionaires and billionaires, you know, getting off tax dollars by putting money in offshore accounts. You know what I mean? And then something like $250. I know people who buy $200 pairs of shoes. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's Your students. <laughs> yeah, I have students who bought a pair of Yeezys, which were like five. One kid bought like $500 pair of shoes. Like, what? You know, so, like, it's not that much money. So it makes you leave see like well at least the government kind of acknowledges that we exist a bit you know like they always talk about the importance of education and it's like okay well we're gonna help you out when i guarantee you if possible teachers would spend 250 dollars a month Mm -hmm. to really get what they needed for their classrooms you know if you want to talk about like pushing forward education so for an entire year it's like it's nice you know and for them to take it away is not so much about the money it's about the principle of it because that two hundred fifty dollars, like we said, like we can figure it out. We'll get it done. But it's the principle, of the fact that that's what you want to cut. Like out of all the things that are going on in society right now that are imbalancing the budget, you're gonna take it from teachers who are buying. Like not even like oh these teachers are using the money wrong. They're trying to help their students better their educational experience, and you're gonna take that away. Mm-hmm. 
I just find that to be uh, insulting. Give me a, give me a uh, a supply buying story that you've had recently. I mean, like David mentioned, he had to bring a chair from his from his own home <laughs> into his classroom, yeah. which wasn't you weren't buying supplies, but you were kind of um, uh, jerry rigging your classroom. <laughs> is there a is there a supply buying or supply getting story that you you have to end this short little segment that um, illustrates? Not personally, but my neighbor uh, teacher, she took a class this summer and she spent pretty much that money on buying um, different seating for her classroom because she, you know, researched that the different seating would allow for kids to not necessarily be stuck at a desk in a, in a plain blue chair. So she bought some of those yoga balls and she brought in some camp seat, like camp seats, you know, the camp chairs. And she spent her own money on that. And then what happened is that the student's like destroyed them. Oh no. So she she had this great research. She was trying to follow through on her professional development and then they got destroyed. And that, that was this year. This year. Yeah. And Has Betsy DeVos said anything about this? About this? Yeah. I want I feel uh, like like I mean she's, I, I don't think she's talked very yeah. much lately. I feel like I mean, you know, I want to know what she thinks. And as a matter of fact, I feel like look at I want to know what her her salary is. Take it from her. Are you talking about the for the Department of Education? Yeah, like yeah. I want. I'm just saying, like I want to know what her thoughts are. She's supposed to represent us, you know. She is. She's supposed to. So I want to know what she thinks. Well, it should be said that this one um, small part of the plan. I mean, Jamie kind of referenced it. It's a very, very small part. There are a number of deductions that are being proposed as being nixed, but. Um, there are other aspects of the House and Senate tax plans that would, I think, have a, an even broader impact on education that I should at least mention. Um, the plans have proposed allowing families to use up to $10,000 in their 529 college savings accounts to pay for other expenses like private school tuition. Uh, that's a big controversial deal. Um, also, the plans would scrap deductions for state and local income and sales taxes, which um, would essentially, um, at least by some analysts' reckoning, um, incentivize states with high income and, and property and, and sales taxes to uh, lower their taxes, which in turn could um, affect school funding, school revenues in those states. So this classroom supply deduction, I think, is a very kind of tangible impact that I think affects, you know, as we saw, nearly every teacher. But I wanted to also mention that those uh, other aspects of this tax plan might also as well have big impacts on education. Our podcast today is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation, learning together with families, educators, entrepreneurs, and innovators to develop quality education that prepares all of Kansas City's students for the future of learning and work. Join the conversation by visiting Kauffman.org or on Twitter at KauffmanFDN. Well, off that discussion about buying our own supplies, another topic that is at least tangentially related, that is teacher pay. Ah, yeah. yeah. Grumble goes through the room. Mm-hmm. Not the actual amount teachers get paid. We've talked about that before, and I I think we know your positions on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, this is more about how teachers get paid. The vast majority of teachers in the U.S., nearly 90%, according to the Brookings Institute, have their pay determined by salary schedule, sometimes also referred to as step-in-column systems or a career ladder, as my dad always referred to it as when he was a teacher. 
That is, teachers' salaries from year to year are determined by a fixed, typically one-page chart made by your school or district where the rows are your education level attained, like bachelor's, master's, master's plus hours, etc., And the columns are your years of experience. So go down to the row that matches your education, go across to the column that matches how many years you've taught, and boom, that number in that box will be what you are getting paid that year. Why is it like this? Well, about a century ago, salary schedules were instituted in public school districts across the country to level the playing field among teachers. Back then, high school teachers and white male teachers were generally paid more than females, teachers of color, and elementary school teachers. So salary schedules were put in place to make things more equal, and in general... They've done that trick. Still, critics, especially conservatives, have railed for years against salary schedules. An editorial published recently in the Long Beach Press-Telegram, found by our own Luann Fox, written by a retired teacher named Larry Sand, is indicative of this line of argument. Sand, who now runs a conservative-leaning group called the California Teachers Empowerment Network, argues that traditional salary schedules are both obsolete and highly unprofessional, his words. He says they pay teachers... For things like experience and education, that research shows does not correspond to better student outcomes. He says salary schedules keep districts from paying teachers more for getting better student results. Interestingly, earlier this school year, the generally left-leaning Brookings Institute published a report that also criticized salary schedules. The report concluded, among other things, that schools' reliance on schedules was actually having the opposite effect from its originally intended purpose. That is, salary schedules now are unintentionally accentuating pay gaps. Remember, schedules reward experience and education, and generally teachers in suburban school districts have more experience and have attained higher levels of education than their counterparts in urban schools. The use of salary schedules, this report argues, are holding back wages for the generally younger teachers who are also disproportionately people of color who work in urban schools. So one of the Brookings Institute's report's suggestions is that you pay teachers more, much more, for working in high-need schools. It highlights a federally financed pilot program conducted in 2009 and 2010 called the Teacher Talent Initiative that allowed some districts to offer $20,000 extra to high-performing teachers to transfer to lower-performing schools. And in general, the program showed that the teachers who transferred did have statistically significant impacts on student performance at their new schools and that most of these teachers who transferred stayed at their new schools even after the incentive pilot program ended. Teachers unions have long advocated for salary schedules, saying they are fair and furthermore because they reward experience, they also incentivize teachers to stay in the profession longer. Groups like the NEA have long responded to calls for incentive and merit pay with their own calls for just simply raising teacher salaries overall. So that's the lay of the land. That's kind of the policy positions of both these sides. So, Luann, you suggested this topic. You <laughs> forwarded me the, the Long Beach Press-Telegram editorial that kind of sparked this thinking. Um, but for the, all the teachers at the table, Luann included, um, what do you think about how you get paid? Not so necessarily the amount, the, you know, we know that part. We know we can, get, we can go down that road if we want. Yeah. But we're just talking more about how you get paid, how the salary is determined, the salary schedule. Do you think that's fair? No. <laughs> oh, a shot across the bow, David. Uh, I mean, uh, <laughs> this is my ninth year teaching. I've seen a lot of young, younger teachers come in and exit a lot faster because they feel like, well, I could go get my master's degree or my higher ed, but now that's debt. 
that's going to eat up the little bit of money that I would have gotten as a raise. So that that echoes what uh, many critics, including the Brookings Institute, would say is that this the, the type of salary schedule that's been in place for decades, right. it disincentivizes younger people, millennials especially, mm-hmm. um, who feel that they can make, make more and more quickly in another profession. Right. And it's like it's rewarding you just for hanging around longer, not necessarily for doing your 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 best job. And for most teachers, not all again, those first few years is when you you're really coming strong out the gate. You are motivated. You just left the classroom. You're ready to go. You got all these bright ideas. Um, And then sometimes you get to this point where it's like, why am I trying so hard? Like nobody's going to see it. Nobody's going to reward it. It doesn't matter if I've turned this classroom around. I might as well just so then you're saying it's kind of it's it's perverse to keep getting kind of bumped up salary wise after you reach that point in your career where maybe you don't feel the motivation to improve. Right. What's interesting about the people I'm looking at this table, so you all have kind of in your separate districts where you work, you've worked there now, I think all of you mm-hmm. at least seven, eight, yeah. nine going on a decade. Mm-hmm. Um, Over twenty. <laughs> so um <clears throat> you would theoretically be the people who would be benefiting from the salary mm-hmm. schedule system the most, right? Because you're staying in one place, you're building up that, you're going up that career ladder. Mm-hmm. Um, but yet, I, I, I sense some doubt about the salary schedule system at the table. Yeah, Jamie. Yeah, and I have noticed, you know, working with older teachers, and I'm not criticizing them by any means, but they're like, I only have two more years, and then I get to retire, and mm. they have kind of gone to maybe a more worksheet based read the textbook, answer these questions-based class rather than something that would actually mm-hmm. get them thinking about what they're going to do in the future as some of the newer teachers. And even some of the young I... teachers, though. Some of the young teachers, sorry, Luanna, to cut you off, they get to a point where they get lazy, too. Mm-hmm. Like, I've seen I've seen some of these young teachers come in and like, why should I try? I'm going to get this check. You know, maybe I won't even mm-hmm. stick around that long um, because there is no incentive on both ends. Right. Mm-hmm. On both ends, there's no incentive to work harder, um, even though your job is the most important job. Luann, you have something well, to Well, I have several things. But, I mean, one of the things I, that I would like to add, um, speaking up for um, apparently the older set, is that <laughs> some of us just understand what it's like because we've seen it come around and go around. So we don't jump on every innovation that there is for the sake of innovation because it's a bright, shiny thing. We're less likely to grab onto it because we have the benefit of some experience. And, and I'm not um, speaking against what's happening with you. I'm just talking about like, in, you know, like, say, in my own district, you know, we have a mixture of younger teachers and older teachers. And sometimes younger teachers will say, I, I read this thing and it looks like this will work. So let's like trot it out. And then it's not it's not really tested. It doesn't like bring any results. But yet it looks like it's a fun thing that could be that could happen. And then you've got the older teachers that are like, we know what this used to be called 15 years ago or 10 years ago or five years ago. And then, you know, we've seen the pendulum swing. So um, there's there's one thing that I wanted to say about that. But um, one of the articles that uh, I was reading to get ready for this mentions something about how in years three to five, these teachers grow so much. And that's really when they're like, you know, uh, working and, and seeing all this positive change and they're making things it's happen when for they, their when students. They, when they grow professionally right. the most. Well, I yeah. mean, when you think about it, I mean, come on, Malcolm Gladwell is the one you talked about that ten thousand hour rule. When you when you parse that out into teaching, what is that? Year six or seven? Yeah, you should be a veteran teacher at year six or seven, and you should be able to get it by that point and understand what it is that you're doing. So it's really really hard to be on the same trajectory when you're on a steep incline of oh my gosh my kids are doing well. Well, if you're already good, it's really hard to go from good to great every single year. So by then. The- well, so then- 
I, I take that point. Um, I think it's something that, that, that echoes what David was mm-hmm. saying earlier. So then how do you properly incentivize teacher performance after that point in your career? Like, I, a- after I think you what you do that... is you use your people who are knowledgeable in the certain areas that they're knowledgeable in, and you actually establish a culture where you're working together in your department, and you say, hey, person who's the best at grammar, person who's the best at whatever, can you help the other people because they don't know it and as much? Do, but how and does that young... translate into actual pay for teachers? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, mean, I get what you're saying, like incentivizing them to work together to, to, to still be professionally fulfilled. I get all that. But then how does that translate into like actual I like the idea. Um, actual pay for teachers? So like, are you, is your question that the pay shouldn't increase? No, as... I'm, I'm asking you, like, if, if, if this salary schedule system may not be the best way to capture mm-hmm. how a teacher grows professionally mm-hmm. um, or even incentivize them to grow professionally after, like, let's say year five or six, after yeah. the 10,000 hours, um, then how do you incentivize it? I good, like the idea of the group, question. the group um, incentive. You know where it said like to incentivize you guys working in a group. Um, if there if results are seen, then there could be pay increases there. Yeah, yeah. It, I mean there there have been studies that show that incentivizing a group of teachers as opposed to in, right. incentivizing them individually Absolutely, might work Absolutely, because you do have that trajectory within a department. So then, if if it's a department of English teachers or social studies teachers or whatever. You're going to probably have a range of some younger, some some teachers who've been around a little bit more experience, and I think then that way you have the the idea of them coming together to say what's going to be the best for our department to make us not only most successful but have the most impact. Um, and I think that when you have that, it can remove a lot of this like younger teachers versus more experienced mm-hmm. teachers mindset. Because if if that's the case, if it's just an individual based thing, it's going to be impossible to track it. Absolutely. You know, teachers can skew the scores or Certain teachers might teach classes that might be considered uh, not as content heavy. You know, I teach international relations. It's discussion based. Right. Mm -hmm. But it still has its merit. Um, And so if you look at our department as a whole, we're all playing our pieces and we can say, okay, well, this is where you need to be. Um, And then the school district or, you know, can look at and say, well, they're they're doing a good job at what they're supposed to be doing. And that can be an incentive to push us further. Jamie, you're kind of in that uh, 10,000 hours moment in your career, right? Like you're past the initial bump of your being a young teacher. It happens to each teacher in a different time period in their life when they get to that point where they're like, why am I doing this? Why am I still trying so hard? And some some teachers may never get to that point. Like, I have had to change my class every two years for the 10 years I've been in it. So I have not taught the same thing for like more... Th- like a different prep, a different God, subject. Yeah. Really frustrating. So, yeah, so, oh, my gosh. So that's I've always had to stay fresh. And, oh, wow. and that's not something that... I think every teacher is forced to do, and yet there's still good teachers even though they're not forced to do that. So it sounds like you kind of would agree with David's... The group incentive. Uh, the group incentive idea. Yeah, is, is absolutely. Because if you're changing and you have these good ideas, yeah. or if you you know if you're forced to make those changes, then you can bring those to the table and collaborate. Like this this year has been really open for me, in that I get to collaborate with the other teachers, and well, I like that. And when it and when it does pit teacher against teacher in that way, then it then it forces you to see your world just as your world you, you don't see the your students at your school as all your students you you know we're supposed to be helping all of our students so i can help the most students if i'm sharing with other teachers yeah, yeah. you know i mean we we need to be working together because we have a large amount of of constituents that we have to deal with are there jobs within education and when i say education i mean like in the teaching profession that are in your opinions um worth getting paid more like i mean i mentioned that example of the the 
the incentive pilot program where teachers were paid $20,000 more per year to go in, into the lower performing schools within the district? Are there, do you think that type of incentivizing where you're, you're, you're paying substantially more for teachers to go into um, high needs subject areas, low performing schools, is that special education? I mean, yeah. I mean, do you think like schemes, schemes like that are would would be effective? Yeah, or but who? who yeah, I do, but I, I'm not sure how they would be funded because I mean, I'm thinking of our own um, poorer districts here, and it's mm. like, where does the money come from to mm. pay teachers uh, a larger amount to go? It'll there? come from that money they save when they take away our supply part. They'll just <laughs> oh shift God. it over there. Well, and my issue with that too, I agree that if you're going to work in a more challenging district or a more challenging area, you should. There should be some incentive, but then at the same time, is that still guaranteeing quality teachers, mm. or is it dangling a carrot That's in front a really of someone good point. that, mm-hmm. oh, hey, I can make way more money there? Mm-hmm. Is that really going to ensure quality education? That's right. a good point. Yeah. Uh, well, not going to be solved here, but an interesting <laughs> discussion. And Luann, thank you for forwarding the <laughs> the article that started the discussion. Hey, revved up. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, on to the next topic. The Phoenix School District recently announced that it would stop using a series of interactive animated online games because of complaints some of the content of the games was insensitive. The game series Mission U.S. is developed by New Jersey public broadcaster WNET, and it aims to uh, teach students history by placing them into different eras of American history and have them role-play as characters navigating through those settings. There are five games overall in the series. They were first launched in 2010 with money from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. The series includes games that allow kids to play characters in the Revolutionary Era all the way up to the Great Depression. The game that created the controversy in Phoenix and was also previously dropped in Minneapolis after another controversy there is called Flight to Freedom, and it asks students to take on the role of Lucy King, a fictionalized 14-year-old slave girl living in Kentucky in 1848. Lucy, as the game goes, escapes slavery, goes to Ohio, but is then recaptured and taken back into slavery. Students navigate as Lucy through this process. They're given different scenarios and dilemmas, choices to make as Lucy, who to trust as she tries to escape, where to run to, etc. They interact with both fictional and real historical characters along the way. They're asked to collect vocabulary words, review primary source documents like slave handbills. Students can earn badges as they play. These are essentially points that are totaled up and affect Lucy's fate at the end of the game. One of the badges, for instance, is earned... When students, again, playing Lucy, choose to resist their slave master's commands by choosing to work more slowly. (laughs) Uh, Online videos touting the game say that it allows students to better understand the moral and ethical choices slaves face. Teachers in these videos laud the game and all its supporting activities and lessons as a comprehensive way to teach about slavery. But the games, as I said, have proven controversial. A Phoenix Black Lives Matter leader demanded the school district there stop using it after he heard of students coming home and telling their parents that they were playing the capture the slave game at school. Uh, This man, J.J. Johnson, said of the game, quote, to just turn slavery into a cartoon and make it incumbent upon kids to unpack these messages on their own is grossly irresponsible, end quote. We should also say Johnson and others have also criticized another game in this series that has kids role play the part of a young Cheyenne boy during the 1860s when Native American tribes were facing intense pressure to move off their lands and experiencing what many historians say amounted to cultural genocide. Indeed, the makers of the game at public broadcaster WNET admit 
in today's current social and political climate, an animated role-playing game about slavery may not be the best way to teach slavery still. They also stand by the game, as one of WNET's heads of educational programming and development told Current Magazine, quote, there is an urgent need to facilitate more dialogue and discussion about our painful history of race and slavery in America. To do so, we need a range of tools that can bring both young people and adults into the conversation, end quote. Um, well, what do you think? Is this game uh, Flight to Freedom? Um, I, you know, you go, you, I think, Jamie, you teach middle school. David and uh, Luann, your high school teachers, I think this was intended for kind of the middle school set, maybe slightly younger, fifth, sixth grade. Um, is, is the game irresponsible? Do you see where they're possibly going? Do you see any value in it? What do, what do you think? No. I mean, I mean, yes, I think it's irresponsible. <laughs> I mean, I, I kind of have a fairly strong reaction because I was thinking – um, any any game that um, diminishes or devalues human life, I mean, don't we have enough video games that, that sort of do that? Um, I don't even know the names of them because I'm, I'm admittedly not a video game player, but there are several of them that take a cartoonish shot at like uh, a life that can be lost, a life that is in danger, and students at very young, impressionable ages not really understanding maybe the ramifications of that and, you know, the the promotion of violence, that's one thing. And another thing, do we not have enough books around that really can talk about slavery in ways for students to be able to understand? I mean, like, have we have we forgotten about things like Huckleberry Finn or anything that could be um, historical fiction or anything that could help with that? And like, I suppose the third thing... I don't thing, know what these books <laughs> that you speak of. What yeah. is this? <laughs> but yeah, books, right. Um, and But the third thing is, is that... I mean, literally, are we this divorced from our humanity so much that in order for students to be able to understand that, we have to put them in situations like they like they can't get that otherwise? Yeah. Yeah. So, Jamie, David, let's gather your thoughts first. Well, we they, move on. I just feel like obviously it's an oversimplification. And even with teaching, showing them that it's a game is not putting – I mean, it's you're not really putting them in the place of any character. There's no way that they could even come close to comprehending what it was like through a game – it's just mind blowing to me <laughs> that mm-hmm. that they're still standing behind this because it's it, no one can live through that. And I mean, through a game, you are not receiving any sort of experience through a game mm-hmm. like that. And obviously there should be teaching and the and some, co- you know, conversations and dialogue. And then this game would be unnecessary. Just yeah. it's yeah, mind blowing to me. David. You are, in fact, an international relations social studies teacher. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I, the amount of cultural insensitivity mm-hmm. in this is mind-blowing. And the fact that you have so-called educators who allowed this into their classrooms is terrifying. And, I mean, this points to so many things that are, are flaws within our system. First of all, where were the people of color in the room? Like, did nobody say, like, hey, I'm offended? Like, I just You're talking about like when the game was being developed. The, yeah. the developed and even, okay, the developers, they do what they do. They're trying to make their money. That's really what it's about. But when it comes to the district, this just goes to show that we have an issue at the higher levels that allowed this to come into their district. Like, if this came into my school district and I found out about it, I would be picketing. Like, you wouldn't, you're not, at least, you're not going to make me use it in my classroom. And I've mm-hmm. taught middle school. And if they came, if this somehow get channeled all the way down to my room, no, it's not happening. And I'm taking it to the news and blowing it up. Mm-hmm. And I just feel like it should have happened a long time ago. And for them to be like, well, we understand that now the climate might not be ready for it. The climate has never been good not for this. For what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. You know, like, have you not seen 12 Years a Slave? 
Like, okay, like, have you not seen Django? I don't know. There's, like, movies out here that tell you that mm-hmm. slavery was terrible. And even with the Native American game, like, how insensitive is that? Like, you might have been, there might have been African-American students in this classroom. And anytime you have a game, it dumbs it down. Mm-hmm. A game yeah. dumbs down everything. These cartoonish images, well, what, kids don't take it as serious right. as you what You gamify it is. human so, cruelty, and that's yeah. bad. And I mean, yeah. so I feel like... Like this just goes to show that we have an education system that is very culturally non-diverse. There's not a lot of different voices in, at the top. At the top, it's ran by white males who are detached, and they're probably getting some kind of check from this game organization to endorse it. And I feel like they didn't think about like what. Effect well, I, this I, has. I should say, I, I should say, it was developed by a public broadcaster, so not not a lot of money changing hands, but <laughs> like maybe not, maybe, yeah. maybe not so much well, if like a. If uh, the if like if EA if EA right. if Electronic Arts had made it, but yeah. still, I mean, there there was money three point seven. I think from what I read, three point seven million dollars of corporate corporation for public broadcasting funding and a little bit of money from the Federal Department of Education also funded the initial design of this game back in two thousand ten. Department of Education. So this is so this is interesting, right? So all three of you pretty vehemently against this game. This points to what Luann was saying. Everything that's new and shiny does not mean it's good, right? Right? Like, oh, kids like games. And we don't think kids can handle this kind of material. Uh, kids can handle this material. Look at the rap videos these kids watch nowadays. Yeah. They can handle violence. They see more violence. So let's have real conversations with them instead of dumbing it down and offering it. Like, well, uh, kids won't eat their fruits and vegetables, so we got to give them gummy candies. And now they get hooked to sugar and candy. Like, it's a bad <laughs> equation here, you know? So, like, we, we're saying that we don't think they can handle it, so we're going to give it to them in this dumbed-down way. But they've been handling it way before that. I remember reading stuff when I was younger about slavery and Native mm-hmm. American experience. That was very like alarming, but it made you think Absolutely. way beyond what a game was. And wouldn't it be more interesting to encourage people to have uncomfortable conversations yeah. and navigate those well versus just you know sitting you in front of a game where you don't see the reality? And the, the teacher game, can check out. Yeah, the gamification <clears throat> of human cruelty is just not right. Yeah, and to David's point where they can't handle it, to me this speaks that the, the adults can't handle it. Right. That the adults can't mm-hmm. have this Good conversation, point. that they don't feel comfortable having this conversation. And I feel like that aspect of education has been taken away from us, where we're, we're no longer the professionals in the classroom, that we have to make sure that everybody's okay with everything that's going on and we can't have these hard conversations. Mm-hmm. And so we put them in front of a game that's been, you know, okayed by the principal so that everybody's fine because it's a game right so it becomes a quest for freedom right (laughs) and that's what it was right those hard conversations have to be allowed and they have to be they have to be teacher driven and so do i mean do you do you think hard conversations would still be allowed because i think the game is is uh it, it, it's just, I mean, based on the, the materials and, and, and the videos I've watched pr- preparing to, about this, I didn't know anything about this game before I, we started talking about this, but um, th- there are, like, supplementary materials, that, there are activities and, and group conversations that are to happen once the kids play their game module. So it's not just, like, kids sitting in right. front of a, but, a computer and... and but allow me, but allow me yeah. to add, what is that... Let's be in the mind of the 10-year-old or the 11-year-old or whoever's getting it. What does that teach the actual kid? The kid is like, if I'm Lucy and I make this choice, I'm going to go to this level. And if I'm Lucy and I make that other choice, then this other thing is going to happen. Because that's what the gamification is about. It's about, like, how to get to the next level. It's about how to get to, like, the thing that makes you win. Well, slavery is pretty much a no-win situation. I mean, what the kid needs to learn is the peril 
that people were put in and the oppressive system that was happening, it's not like what choices should Lucy make so she can like, <laughs> I don't know, uh, live longer or be happier or badge. something. And <laughs> to say that she <laughs> had a choice, you know? Right. It shouldn't be, it shouldn't be about, it so shouldn't you, be about that. So yeah, Have, uh, that, right, that's but, what I'm asking. Are we so divorced from our own humanity that we cannot grasp human cruelty unless it's like we play a game. made cartoonish? Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, it's David. called history, story. There are stories that these kids can read and it can be discussed because when you have these game modules and, and uh, you know, you know, programs that come with it, who's the guarantee that the teacher is going to be equipped to really lead the kids from a lower level of consciousness to a higher level of consciousness? You've already taken them so low with the game and you're going to have a amount of kids, some kids who are going to just get lost in the game. They, it's all about winning. I remember playing Oregon Trail, and now that I think about it, Oregon Trail was terrible, right? Like if you think about how it. I, I mean, loved Oregon Trail. I liked it. Too. <laughs> I liked it too. But you I know, I liked it too. But I, I it did not make me understand the experience of traveling westward. Like I, I never thought about that. I thought about oh, winning. Has dysentery. Yeah, like, or oh, <laughs> like, you lost. I think we all learned you were not supposed to ford the river. I right, think we like, all learned oh, that. You lost, you lost another kid. Oh no, let's start all over. Like you don't take it seriously because you're not forced to. But I'm just trying I, to win the game. Right, but yeah, I also you're remember. Just trying to get to Oregon. I also remember my fifth, sixth grade teacher sitting us down to talk about some real history and she presented it in a way that was so compelling that it really made you think. And yes, some kids were moved. Some kids were, I cried. Some kids were challenged. But the, the problem is that administration is afraid of backlash. They're afraid of confrontation. But if you're in the right and you're doing your job, you got to be ready for that, you know? And we as teachers, we're, we're flexible. If the good teachers in the room, which they're most, most teachers are good, are ready for that. That's what we got into this profession for, especially if you teach social studies. You know, that's, we're, we're into, in it for those stories. Somebody's got to address it or we're going to have the problems that we're having. Obviously, we have problems for a reason in this country right now because we're not telling the stories. So people are saying things and doing things because they never learned it and, or they play the game. Don't ford the river. We know that, though. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, that's a good point to end on. I, th I think um, excellent discussion. I had not even um, considered many of the things that you guys brought up. Open my eyes. Thank you. <laughs> All right, stay tuned. We are going to do Kids These Days after the credits. This episode of No Wrong Answers is sponsored by the Kaufman Foundation. No Wrong Answers retains total editorial control in what our teachers say are their personal opinions which may not reflect the official policies of the schools and districts they work for. You can like us at Facebook, follow us on Twitter. Just search for the No Wrong Answers podcast by Fountain City Frequency. Find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And once you find us, subscribe and leave us a review. It helps. There are no other podcasts like ours giving you a teacherly take on the world. If you've enjoyed this conversation, subscribe, leave us a review, and keep the conversation going. Now, kids these days, mid-November, headed towards the Thanksgiving break. Luann, what are your kids into? Well, I... At my school, um, in this week, the week we just passed, is something called a week of giving um, where you know, it, it's capped off by a blood drive and it begins with uh, you know, food donations and that kind of thing. So, um, And, you know, the doldrums of school kind of set in so um, kid depression kind of, you know, can, can hit. So uh, kids these days at my school are kind of into little Post-it notes where they give uh, little awesome feedback to people like, you're great, you know. Just kind of random. That, that that kind of thing, and we we see that all over the school, and and that's kind of special for a week, and that's been the the topic nice. right now. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Jamie, what are your kids into? Um, I seem to have always brought up something that's fashion wise. 
and usually with boys. But this year, like right now, the girls, it's basketball season for the girls. And right now they're kind of mimicking what I think they see in professional sports, you know, professional athletes. They're tucking in the front of their shirt only. <laughs> whether it's into like whether they're dressed nice into their jeans or whether they're wearing a t-shirt into their sport pants it's just like just the front the, the girl basketball yeah. players well, yeah well all of, all of them yeah. all of them are like all of the kids are doing it but um, i especially notice it right now because you know some of the girls get dressed fancy for the for the game days which is great but they still just the front you know <laughs> <Just> like, <laughs> uh, you were the one that uh, white crocs white crocs yep yeah white mm-hmm. a couple, yeah they're uh, back a few weeks ago yep. yeah white crocs <laughs> yep. uh, david what are your kids into i actually have a lot more serious one. Oh, i know it's, <laughs> but it's one of those days kids these days at least at this school, I need I, my, they need to seek out some guidance because we've had a lot of situations where kids are um, using prescription pills and things like that at school. Um, I mean, we've I had know. kids, you know, ambulances come several times. And, you know, I know that myself and other professionals and even students are worried about this, the culture of these kids. I feel like this points to the fact that we need a, a bigger mental health push in this country. We don't take it seriously. Um, and there's a lot that um, these kids are going through whether it's anxiety and depression and they're taking it out in other ways that are unhealthy and it's scary. So uh, I'm just saying, kids, kids, go get some help and you're, you have teachers that care about you and uh, yeah. True that. Mm-hmm. Well, a programming note, we will be taking the next two weeks off from taping new episodes around the Thanksgiving holiday, but look in our feed, we'll be sending out some best of segments from previous episodes and we'll be back with a brand new episode the last week of November. Thanks to our teachers this week, Luann Fox, Jamie Myers, David Muhammad. Thanks, as always, to Matt Hodap, who produces the podcast. And thank you to KCUR 89.3, Kansas City Public Radio, where we tape. I'm Kyle Palmer. And remember, kids, be nice to your teachers. Mm-hmm.